Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm pretty excited about this story, guys. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it's a wild one. Have we all heard it, first of all? We've all, we've all heard the story of the temptation of Christ. So it's unique for a couple of reasons. I don't think it was until I started researching for this passage that I realized that while most of the Gospels read like eyewitness accounts, right? Most of them read like this is what it was like for other people to be around Jesus. But not this story. This is one of the very few stories where there are no eyewitnesses, where Jesus is the only mortal character. It's one of the very few stories where we get an idea, not what it was like for other people to be with Jesus, but what it was like for Jesus to be Jesus. Does that make sense? Like we get an account of Jesus on his own, facing the voice of his accuser. The only other story I can really think of this week where that's the case was the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays in agony, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And I think it paints a very different picture of the inner life of Christ than we might be used to imagining. Most of the time we think that Jesus' problems are, you know, just kind of coming from his annoying disciples or from the annoying scholars. But it seems like at the very least there was a lot going on. Jesus' inner life was not always one of peace. The other interesting thing about this story, though, is that it's doing so many remixes of old scriptural motifs, things that we would recognize if we've read the rest of the Bible closely. For one thing, it takes place in the wilderness. 
Now, in the Bible, the wilderness is always more than the wilderness. If someone's in the wilderness, they are not just in the wilderness. That word is used when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden. They're cast into the wilderness. If the Garden of Eden is everything in God's creation ordered and thriving, then like the wilderness is the exact opposite. It's the place where God casts Adam and Eve. It's where God casts Cain after Cain murders his brother. It's where the Israelites wander for 40 years in search of the promised land. So when you're in the wilderness, nothing is certain. Paradise might be coming. It might be in the rear view. But when you're in it, nothing's certain. And so it's here that Jesus comes to be tested. It's here in this sort of liminal in-between space that Jesus comes to face the ultimate question. What does Jesus believe about himself? Not just what do we believe about Jesus, but what does Jesus believe about himself? Justin, if we have that next slide. Yeah, so like, even though Jesus' ministry hasn't started yet, there's no disciples and there's no miracles yet, this is very early in Matthew's gospel, Jesus should know his identity. The story directly before this, like literally flip the page, directly before this is Christ's baptism. And that leaves no room for doubt as to who Jesus is in the eyes of God. At the moment of Christ's baptism, it says, heaven was opened, and Jesus sees the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Have any of you guys ever gotten like a really, really meaningful word of encouragement that you're just like, oh yeah, that's going to last me a while? You know, like, that was really good. That was some for real dopamine right there. That's going to last me a while. But it's in the wilderness that Jesus is going to hear the exact opposite. If we bring up this next slide. I love this icon because it's kind of a comic. You're supposed to read it from left to right. So Jesus' temptations are presented in order there, ending with the casting out of Satan. But in almost every one of these interactions, no, in every one of these interactions, Satan is going to question what it is that Jesus believes about himself. If you click next there, Justin. Oh, thanks, Marie. Sorry. Satan questions the very premise of Jesus' identity with every temptation. He starts the first one and he says, if you are the Son of God. The second one, if you are the Son of God. And while the third one does not start with that phrase explicitly, he does ask Jesus to bow to him. Which I think it should go without saying that if Christ were to do that, it would mean there were some doubt going on 
as to his own identity. If you are the son of God, Satan says. All the actions he presents, all the actions the accuser presents rest on the same premise that Christ's identity is not certain. That Christ's status in God's eyes has yet to be proven. And if we go to that next slide, the question now is less, is Jesus going to sin? And the question is more, which voice is Jesus going to believe? Which will Christ believe? What his father has said or what Satan implies? Will Christ remember that he is God's beloved son? I don't know about you guys, but this very quickly stops becoming just a question about Jesus. I think there are so many ways set up in this world that we are meant to question our own worth and our own status as God's beloved children. And you don't have to go into the wilderness and meet Satan to do this. I'm in a job search right now. I don't know what's coming next. That's not a full-on wilderness, but it is this in-between space. It's a space where I don't know what's next, and I can very quickly begin to question my own worth in God's eyes. It starts with, this job offer didn't work out. But it quickly becomes... I'm not hireable. And it's a hop, skip, and a jump from there, from I'm not hireable to I'm not worthy. That, friends, is the voice of the accuser. It's the voice we face in our everyday lives. It's the voice we face in our own individual wildernesses. And I'm talking here about accuser with a capital A, right? This isn't just an, oh, I should improve type of constructive criticism. This isn't guilt. This is shame. This is I am irredeemable. Who I am is fatally flawed. And friends, as we enter into this story together, if you take nothing else from this story tonight, take this reminder, this promise from God that you can speak over yourself again and again and again for as long as it takes. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Amen? Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Should be on that next slide here. All right, I want you to say it with me. We're going to do this a couple times tonight. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Okay, I didn't really believe you. Say it with me. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Amen. Amen. So let's see what the accuser tries to do to get Jesus to forget this. Our first point, the accuser promises immediate comfort. This is the first panel 
of our temptation comic. The accuser promises immediate comfort. If we bring up that scripture there. So then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This, by the way, is the Spirit that just alighted on him like a dove. The first thing the Spirit did, get to the wilderness. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is how the story starts. Uh, Did you notice how there wasn't a whole lot of lead up to Satan? Like, Satan just pops up and you're supposed to just know who this guy is or just kind of roll with it. There's not a lot of Satan lore given here. Jesus doesn't say to him, aha, yes, you, I remember, you were God's most beautiful angel and you fell from the, like, no, he just shows up and he starts accusing. Well, really, that's most of what we get in most areas of the Bible. Satan is a underdeveloped character. And it's really more of a title than anything. But go to that next slide. I know we've talked about this before. Hasatan is the Hebrew title given here. All it literally means is the opposer or the accuser. The one who speaks against. Here he might be translated into the tempter. But all Satan does here is what his title implies. He accuses. He tries to get Jesus to forget who Jesus is. And I think it's important to recognize, even though we're not told much about what the accuser was doing before this or after this, we can see when the accuser chose to strike. It's when Jesus is alone, disconnected, and hungry. He's alone, he's disconnected, and hungry. I don't know about you, but when I am any one of those things for a prolonged period of time, I can start to believe some untrue things pretty quickly. I'm pretty vulnerable to lies, whether or not they're about myself. If we go to this next slide, Jesus has already been in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He's haggard. He's lacked shelter. He's lacked the comfort of friends. There's no disciples waiting for him back home. There's no ministry that's been ramped up. There's no movement to take solace in. This is just a man in the wilderness. Now, it's important to note that accusations about someone's identity 
will never go away with a simple proof. Here's what I mean by that. Like, let's play out the tape if Jesus said yes to the accuser, right? So Jesus turns the stones to bread, he eats the bread, and the accuser just says, my mistake, a thousand pardons, and leaves him alone forever. Is that, is that our experience with our innermost intrusive thoughts? Is that our experience with the lies we tell ourselves? They don't go away with proof. They say it's what they want, but they just find another way to bring us down. Now, this is something to take note of also. Is, is my existential crisis something that I need to pay attention to? Or am I just hungry? That's a question worth asking in normal times. But when those things are taken away, either through fasting or because the batteries on your headphones died, those things that we use to numb ourselves to the voices of our accusers, a discomfort often arises. It's a discomfort with the world or with ourselves. Because it's not always bread and starvation. We so often use what we have for more than nourishment. And we use our delights for more than innocent pleasure. We use our immediate comforts to numb the voices of our accusers. And when they're taken away, that's when the voice can choose to strike. What I find fascinating about this passage is that it does not give a recipe to make those voices stop. It does not give a recipe to silence the voice of the accuser, but it does give us something to remember when we hear it. Even in the face of the accuser, even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Amen? I'll say it with me. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. One more time. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Amen. The second thing the accuser does when bread doesn't work. Our second slide here. The accuser uses religion. (coughs) We bring up that passage. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So it didn't take long for the accuser to start quoting scripture. And I don't think this should surprise us, right? If it works, it works. Our accuser often mimics the voices we've been conditioned to trust. Our our accuser often mimics the voices we've been conditioned to trust. 
There's a friend of mine who also suffers from OCD, like myself, and I think she described it really well, the intrusive thoughts that prey upon her brain. She studies biology, so the way she described it was a parasite that mimics her conscience in order to survive. A parasite that mimics her conscience in order to survive. And it does a heck of an impression. Let me tell you firsthand, it does a heck of an impression. But there's a couple ways to combat that voice. If not silence it, at least turn the volume down. If nothing else, this part of the story encourages, it encourages us to know our scripture so we can tell when it's being taken out of context to harm us. The accuser here is quoting a psalm of David, Psalm 91 to be specific, and I'm not an expert on the psalms, much less on this psalm in particular, but I know that David came to harm like, I know that David's life was not a life unscathed. So do I know what this passage means that the accuser is saying? Not really. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, I, I, I really don't. But I know that whatever it means, it can't mean throw yourself off a building. It can't mean that. Let me explain it another way. If I were in a text conversation with Justin, let's just say, Justin and I are texting, and we start having this real heart-to-heart -heart over text, and Justin says, Scotty, you're like a brother to me, I love you, and I'm so delighted in your being you. Whoa, what an affirming message. What a true friend. But then let's say later that day, I get another text from the same number and it says, hey, Scotty, it's Justin. I don't think anyone has ever truly cared if you lived or died. My first instinct is going to be, someone has Justin's phone. That is not Justin. That's not the Justin I know. Someone else has the phone. That's what we have to realize. When we hear the voice of what we think is God, of what we think is our conscience, of what we think is scripture, we have to realize when someone else might have the phone, this passage challenges us to consider what kind of portrait of God we carry. If you quiet your mind and the voice you hear is one of disgust, friends, it is not the voice of God. If you quiet your mind and the voice you hear tells you to harm yourself, or others, it's not the voice of God. Someone else has the phone. It's your anxiety, it's your depression, it's your accuser. 
But most importantly, it's not the voice of God. It's not the same voice that says, this is my son, in him I am pleased. Because the voice of God is the one that loves you even in the wilderness. Even when you don't know what to do in a certain situation and you're praying for wisdom, even when you don't know what to make of a certain passage of scripture, use that litmus test. The voice of God is the voice of the one who sees you, loves you, delights in you. Go to this next slide here. All right, say it with me one more time. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Amen. Even in the wilderness. Lastly, what the accuser does here in this very short passage is the accuser promises power. Go to that scripture here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the first temptation where the accuser is writing a check from his own account. The first temptation, he says, stones to bread, you should be able to do it. The second temptation, he says, jump off the temple. God should be able to save you. The last one might be the most dangerous. Worship me, and I will give the whole world to you. Bow to me, and I will give the whole world to you. I don't think you need me up here telling you that Satan worship is bad. But I'm on the record now. That's a bad thing. Don't do that. But what does it mean to bow to your accuser? If we think of Satan in that way, what does it mean to bow to your accuser? Well, this isn't the last time that Jesus uses this phrase. Away from me, Satan, is also translated, get behind me, Satan. If we go to that next slide. It's the same phrase he uses when he chastises Peter. Why 
chastising Peter in the same way that he's chastising the very voice of the accuser? It's because both of them are failing to get the way of the cross. Both of them are failing to get that the kingdom of God operates on upside-down logic. Both of them still think that the way that is right is the way of conquest. Taking over the world. So what does that mean for you and me? I think we bow to our accuser whenever we say, yeah, you know what, I, I'm, I'm garbage. I'm a mess and I'm going to work as hard as I can and I'm going to step on as many people as I have to so that no one else realizes it. And maybe if I'm lucky, I'll be strong enough and powerful enough by the end of it that I'll be able to accuse others, that I'll be able to prey on others' insecurities. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and I don't plan on getting eaten. That's the voice of someone who has bowed to their accuser. That is the voice of someone who has not bought into the kingdom of God. And we do the same. We do the same whenever we think that money is worth more than people. We do the same every time we sell a piece of our soul in hopes of gaining some chunk of the world. At least that's what I think. But think on yourself for a second. Maybe your accusing voice takes it a different nature than mine. What is it you're afraid is true about yourself? What are you afraid is true about yourself? Friends, I cannot silence that voice for you. I know that it often does not yield to logic, that too often it will not silence itself at the Lord's name. So I offer here not a silencer, but I offer a harmony to that voice. I offer this reminder to you that even in the wilderness, you are God's beloved. Let's bring up that slide. Say it with me. Even in the wilderness, I am God's beloved. Amen. So what's the good news? Aside from this, like, I mean, that's good news, friends. But what else comes up here? It's that the story doesn't actually end in the wilderness and it doesn't end in solitude. If we bring up that next slide, we have that final panel. At the end of things, 
The accuser doesn't win. Eventually, the accuser tuckers out, and Christ is consoled and comforted and attended by angels. Maybe right now you don't feel like you're in a wilderness. Maybe things feel okay for you right now. So see yourself in the story as an angel. Find the people in your life who are in those in-between spaces and minister to them however you can. But wherever you cast yourself in the story, beware of echoing the voice of the accuser. Beware of any voice that says that we are not enough for God's love. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.